Hi, everyone. Welcome to the December 4th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We were off last week, and as always, when we take a week off, quite a few things happened over the break, so let's get right to it. Last week, Governor Polis tested positive for coronavirus and began to quarantine shortly before Thanksgiving. His Thanksgiving plans differed from those of Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, who traveled to Mississippi shortly after advising residents to cancel holiday travel plans. This week, the mayor issued an apology letter to city staff, calling his actions hypocritical. Penny Calhoun from Westward. Some on Twitter were calling this uh, Hancock's McNichols blizzard moment, where you have a whole legacy of things you've done, but what people remember is this moment. What did you think when you saw this all go down on Thanksgiving? Well, the biggest difference between McNichols and Hancock is McNichols was running again for mayor. Hancock cannot run for mayor, nor can he become the head of transportation, I would say, for the new Biden administration, or really get a job in anything airport or planning related. This was as tone deaf a move as we've seen for a long time, and it was an easy one for everyone to jump on because people were making real sacrifices about their Thanksgiving. People were not seeing any family members, much less getting on a flight to go join some. But I was much more concerned when I thought about it. The day he was flying out was also the day that a city council committee was considering an amended contract on the Great Hall project, which has been a boondoggle and an expensive debacle from the start. We signed that contract with Ferrovial back in August 2017. We've all seen how beautiful the airport looks right now, that we are not going to get what was originally discussed. In the case of security, that's a bad thing because it would be nice to move all the security up to the sixth level. In the case of not getting the whole mall we were going to get, that's a good thing. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Hancock was not alone in uh, officials, whether it be mayors or governors, who issued a uh, do as I say, not as I do uh, statement over the holiday. Uh, how much does this hurt uh, his credibility moving forward? Well, first of all, I'd say I would disagree with Patty that he's not a strong candidate for Secretary of Transportation in the Biden administration. Uh, Mayor Pena of Denver completely screwed up the construction of DIA in the first place, and Mayor Hancock is, is equaling that record. So I think he's really placed himself at the national level there. Um, and as he has in his uh, hypocrisy, along with the mayors of New York, Chicago, District of Columbia, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, but at least he's better off than the mayor of Austin, who uh, filmed his don't travel uh, edict to the little people of Austin while the mayor was in Cabo San Lucas uh, on vacation. Um, and the mayor has, as a national player, he's on the cover of today's New York Post, along with Speaker Pelosi, California Governor Newsom, and both of the Cuomo brothers, Moe and Curley. Uh, and there's quite a collection of the privileged and powerful who don't live by the rules and the suffering that they inflict on everyone else. So it's no wonder that so many people are uh, pushing back against all these hypocritical lockdowns. Marianne Goodland joins us. She's the chief legislative reporter at Colorado Politics. It's wonderful to have you back, Marianne. Uh, when you look at the situation, uh, do you think this is going to affect the relationship between the governor and the mayor? It was in pretty stark uh, comparison when you saw the Thanksgiving uh, weekends that the two of them had to endure or at least enjoyed. Uh, what do you think of that relationship moving forward? I, I think the uh, relationship between Hancock and Polis, if it changes at all, is going to be something that's kept in private. Polis's reaction to the, all of this has been pretty interesting. He's been not shy at all about calling people out for not wearing masks, 
calling them things like selfish bastards and that kind of thing. And his public statements about Hancock have been pretty mild. However, he went on Reddit shortly after this whole thing came out, and I think gave us a hint that there was he was a little more unhappy about this than he's letting on, at least publicly. His comment was that he was saddened for anybody who makes the wrong choice and hopes that uh, they don't wind up paying the ultimate price for it. On the other hand, he believes that public officials should practice and preach responsibility and he's disappointed when others don't because he says, I know our words and our actions matter. Krista Kafer joins us remotely, columnist of the Denver Post. Krista, it's great to have you as well. Uh, Krista, with this hitting so many different elected officials across the country, is this going to begin to have citizens question where they're placing their trust? They should question where they're putting their trust because you've got politicians, uh, you know, a dozen that were doing something other than what they said they were going to do for Thanksgiving or other days where they decided to tell everybody else not to go to dinner and then they went to dinner themselves with a whole bunch of people. Why not simply say, listen, we're in a, in a difficult situation right now, assess your risk and assess the risk of those people around you and then make those determinations as to what you want to do on Thanksgiving. Instead, they told everyone to, to, to stay home and went out themselves. So it makes me wonder whether they actually believe the kind of draconian policies they foisted upon this economy, because obviously if rules are for little people and not for everyone, they're not legitimate rules. The special session of the Colorado legislature to determine the state's pandemic relief strategy adjourned on Wednesday. Around $300 million will be used to ease the impact of the pandemic in the sectors affected most, including housing, small business, and child care. About half of the GOP members in the State House refused to wear masks as the session began, and bills proposed by Republicans, including limiting the power of the governor during the declared emergency, failed. Uh, David, what did you think about the special session, and was this the right time for Republicans to bring up what was probably a valid point about emergency power, but was this the time to do it? Uh, long overdue. Uh, many people were, were shocked this spring when they found out just how many unilateral uh, powers the legislature has delegated to the governor with the, the Emergency Disaster Act. And our, the Colorado laws don't have the safeguards that lots of other states do about emergency powers. And I think it, it's true that the Governor Polis hasn't gone, uh, although he's sometimes gone too far with these unilateral decrees, he certainly hasn't copied the worst abuses of, of some other states like New York or California or Michigan. But the, the history of the world shows that if you give one man the power to declare a perpetual emergency, that power will eventually abuse, be abused by somebody. So the Emergency Disaster Act should definitely be revised. After some period of time, the legislature, when it's able to meet, should have to decide whether to continue the state of emergency or not, or put it to a vote of the people. Uh, our form of government in Colorado is supposed to be a constitutional uh, republic, but we're in effect living in an elective monarchy. And so what a, what a timid, supine legislature we have today. It won't even say that in the future, the legislature itself can decide whether to retain, uh, restore to itself uh, the lawmaking powers which it gave to the governor. Marianne, as our legislative reporter joining us here on the panel, you were there at the, the special session. And, of course, you've heard comments from David about uh, when uh, the whole idea this should have been brought up. What do we need to know about what really went down uh, at the special session? Well, and I do want to push back a little bit on, on uh, David's um, 
explains that this the special session is a place where they could have dealt with some of these emergency powers issues. The Constitution is very clear. A, a special session, the topics covered in that are directed by the governor and he laid out seven policy areas and if the uh, bill that was being brought up doesn't fit in those policy areas, you can't do it. And I have absolutely no doubt that when we get back to January, uh, these issues will come back up again, uh, whether it's emergency powers or providing tax credits to families uh, to cover their educational expenses, including to uh, families with kids in private schools. Krista, when you looked at this, uh, there were a lot of things covered, but did the uh, mask wearing issues that really became much of the headlines, even though we were talking about $300 million, uh, did that become an unneeded distraction? I definitely think it was an unneeded distraction. I think it's an unneeded distraction in general. We know that masks help mitigate transmission. We know that if somebody's sick or you know they can have symptoms or be asymptomatic, if they have the mask, they're less likely to transmit it to others. It's, but it's not a miracle worker. It is something to mitigate transmission. It's important to wear it inside and indoor spaces, but it doesn't really work outside. And yet it's become this sort of symbol of virtue signaling in which you've got people taking pictures of themselves outside with masks on. And then you've got people going inside and not wearing their masks there as another kind of virtue signaling saying, I disagree with this. Um, how about this? We wear masks where we should wear them and we don't wear masks where we shouldn't wear them. And we stop looking at other people and attend to our own needs. Patty, as uh, the week of the special session gives a little bit of everything, we have $300 million to talk about. We have masks issues, who is wearing them when and how. And then, of course, a governor showcasing how to use Lysol spray on bills when you uh, sign them. Uh, take your pick. Uh, what stood out to you? Well, the mask discussion, of course, did just the same way people piled on Hancock's travel. It's the easy discussion rather than talking about how our hospitals are getting crowded, how the death numbers are, the numbers are going up, not just the case numbers, but deaths are increasing. So what we have to pay attention to is that the legislature actually did act very efficiently. They worked pretty quickly. They came up with proposals that should provide some relief. They couldn't go hog wild because we still have a balanced budget rule. And the governor, and they, it's true that they couldn't really get into the emergency power issue because the governor issues the call and he issues the topics. They can address those later, but for right now, I think Polis has shown himself to be a very good governor, willing to make some changes. We have the red to purple dial change. We have them looking at changes for restaurants that might allow some to reopen. So we are moving slowly. Unfortunately, case rates are moving faster. Colorado is expected to see its first round of coronavirus vaccine soon, and who receives the vaccine when is causing debate. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment Vaccine Distribution Plan, prisoners will be considered lower in priority than critical workers and those at highest risk, but higher in priority than the rest of the general population. Governor Polis disagrees with this prioritization of prisoners over the public and says revisions to the plan will be occurring soon. Marianne, we go to you on this one. It seems that the governor feels that his way on this issue is going to be the way it goes, but do you think he's going to be able to make that happen? I don't really think so, because you have a couple of issues at hand here. One is that the state is responsible for the health and well-being of these inmates. They didn't go into prison expecting to contract a deadly disease. The other issue, of course, is that it isn't just the inmates who are at risk here, it's also the people who take care of those inmates. Now, State Representative Leslie Herod, who has been one of the leading advocates for criminal justice reform, 
commented yesterday that she has had a conversation with Polis and believes that he is going to walk that back a little bit uh, about the timing for when the prison inmates get those vaccinations. So I, I think we may see some change in his, his ideas about that. Krista, this is going to bring up a lot of interesting, interesting discussions about vaccines in general. Uh, where do you fall in all of this? You know, I don't think that prisoners, people in jail or prison should go ahead of other vulnerable populations, such as first responders, teachers, the elderly, the disabled, but they should be prioritized. They are a vulnerable population. They're living together. Thousands of people living in one space are much more likely to contract COVID. So I would like to see them receive some priority and certainly priority over people like me. Um, I'm a healthy middle-aged person. I am very low. I mean, I could still get it, but I am a lot lower uh, in terms of vulnerability than people who are in prison. And sort of the characterization that everyone in prison is this evil person. There are a lot of people there who have turned their life around, who are um, who have who've made changes, who regret what they've done, who are going to go on to live uh, good, exemplar lives. And so I think that they... They need to be given a chance and treated as human beings. Petty, uh, this is going to bring up an interesting philosophical philosophical situation because we've already had who gets to say what gets locked down, who gets to say if we wear a mask or not. Now, who gets to say we have a vaccine? That, uh, that That's a big question. Officials, elected officials, experts, everyone in between. Uh, where do you think this is going to go? It's going to become a big mess, and we've already seen it, because it's not just we're hearing federally what is advised. We're hearing statewide what's advised, locally how it's going to be distributed. Uh, I think we can all agree that first responders, healthcare workers should absolutely be first in line, that teachers should be there. Frankly, grocery store workers, the people who are working at those essential businesses, they should be able to get there. But we'll find out where prisoners rank. I don't think they should be last. But there is the dilemma, which is, I would say the people going out without their masks and drinking and rhino maybe should be last. But the prisoners are a challenge because they are in tough places. And early on, those jails, some of the jails, Weld County, didn't take it seriously enough. And so we have seen outbreaks we might not have had otherwise. David, being our esteemed lawyer at the table, I'm wondering if there are any constitutional issues at play here. Um, indeed. But I want to say Marianne's right on the constitutional issue of the uh, emergency powers reform was not within the scope of the governor's call for this special session. But the legislature could have addressed that in regular session in June and can call itself into, the legislature can call itself into special session whenever it wants and and could and should have done that. Um, Our state constitution, Article 8, says that the state legislature must establish and support educational, reformatory, and penal institutions and those for the benefit of the insane, blind, deaf, and mute. But so what happens when these mandatory institutions, you don't have the funding for them because like in the panic of 1893, the state revenues are just so far down that you have to triage. Well, the Colorado Supreme Court in the 1894 Gutekunst case said you've got to give the priority to the people who are involuntarily confined. And that does mean in the modern context, it's not necessarily a binding precedent, but it's the philosophy of the Constitution, uh, the, the prisoners in the jails and, 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 and state prisons. Um, because the alternative to that is early release of them, and that poses all kinds of separate dangers as well. So I think the Constitution tells you uh, focus on the people who are involuntarily confined first. 
The Colorado Attorney General's office has ended a nearly two-year investigation on sexual abuse cases in the Catholic Church. Investigators have determined that since the early 1970s, there have been 212 victims of sexual abuse by 52 priests. The Catholic Diocese has been ordered to pay $6.68 million to, dist- to be distributed amongst 73 abuse survivors. Krista, we go to you on this one. The headline from this story, besides all the different cases, was the fact that Charles Woodrich, uh, known as Father Woody, has been included. Uh, is, his name has been struck from a variety of programs and different uh, places that it was honored. Uh, when you look at this, uh, what was your reaction to the announcement of the completion of this investigation? I'm glad these vile people have been found out. Uh, if any of them are still alive, I hope they go to jail. We've done a good job over the last couple of years of rooting out the evil, whether it's in the clergy, whether it's in sports medicine, whether it's in the Boy Scouts. We need to continue to look for these offenders, these people who put their own disgusting needs above the, the welfare of children. And for those who have died, um, strip their name from everything. Let it be known that if you, if you um, violate, injure a child in this way, you will be forever shamed for what you've done. Strip their names, make them pay posthumously. Patty, uh, none of the cases are, just because we don't know the the priest's name by uh, being on a Samaritan Center or anything like that, doesn't mean it's any better or worse. But the fact that Father Woody, uh, as identified as an abuser, was a big part of this and and a shock to a lot of people, it seemed that the idea that he was part of this investigation earlier this year gave some heads up to some of these organizations because we already saw different programs at at Regis, different names on buildings had already been changed. Uh, Does that put a, uh, a different mark on the effectiveness of this investigation? Well, it shows that the investigation was willing to go where the archdiocese hadn't gone, where previous investigations hadn't gone, because you have to assume that people who had been, kids who had been abused by Father Woody must have told someone, must have told someone, but whether or not they they weren't believed or people didn't want to attack a beloved figure in the city, we don't know why it was quiet for so long, but it is heartbreaking for the city, certainly for the people who were abused by a beloved figure. And you can see why the charities that were going on in his name and doing good works mm-hmm. wanted to change his name. Uh, shame on the archdiocese for letting this happen for so long, for transferring the priests who are bad, for protecting the priests who created problems. Um, Krista's right, they should go to jail, and they should go to jail and be on the bottom of the vaccine list. David, how did, uh, what was your impression of how the investigation went through the Attorney General Weiser's office? Well, I, I think we, uh, it, it showed pretty convincingly that there were, uh, something we've known already, but there were terrible management problems in the Denver Catholic hierarchy uh, in the 1970s and 1980s and to some extent continuing in the 1990s. Uh, the, the positive thing is there's new management in place now um, no ins- the Attorney General's very thorough investigation didn't find, I believe, any incident in this century. And under uh, Archbishop Aquila, uh, the Archdiocese and all the, the Catholic church- churches, not all of which are under the Archdiocese direct management, uh, fully cooperated with the investigation, turned over everything, and that, that was the proper thing. So I'm, I'm glad they've got uh, better leadership going forward. 
Marianne, now that we've seen uh, the Colorado Attorney General act on this in cooperation with all three dioceses in Colorado, do you think we've seen a resolution of this issue in the state? I certainly hope so. This has been going on for a long time. We have had thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the country and, and worldwide, really, who have been injured and, and have suffered enormously. I, I saw one estimate the other day that something like $6 billion has been paid uh, to survivors of sexual abuse by priests. And I think the message to all organizations that have responsibility for our kids is people are going to be watching. Well, it's time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I think I'm returning to a disgrace of two weeks ago, which is the treatment of Dominion Voting Services, a Denver-based company used by 62 or 61 of Colorado's counties, used around the country, keeps getting the finger pointed at it by Trump, by you name it, and we have no evidence of widespread voter fraud. We certainly have no evidence that this company has been a tool of some maniacal conspiracy. But meanwhile, employees at this company have been threatened. I mean, I recommend you go to their website and read their setting the record straight statement. Very interesting. David. Um, a independent arbitrator uh, decided on the police, the new contract between the city of Denver and the police officers and came up with something uh, that's very close to what the mayor and the Denver Police Protective Association had negotiated months ago, uh, but got shot down by the far left of the city council. And so the, the arbitrator's decision, I think, vindicates the reasonableness of the uh, Protective Association and the mayor in the, in the fair uh, deal they made. Marianne, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. This is a shout out to Tegna and DirecTV. Come on, folks. It's been a week now. Let's get this uh, resolution of, of your dispute with each other resolved and get Channel 9 back on the air because I miss my news programs and I miss Kyle Clark. I certainly feel for our uh, commercial brethren out there with uh, this, all the different contract issues with satellite companies and the like. It's, it's not fun. We hope all of the uh, local programming in Colorado, be it commercial or public, be available to everybody soon. Krista, what's your disgrace of the week? So there was a new poll that showed that only 60% of Coloradans were willing to get the, the, the upcoming vaccine for coronavirus. All I want to say is who are these 40%? Do they understand that Vaccine science has been around for a couple hundred years. There's been there's there's processes in place to ensure the safety of these. They've already had animal testing, human testing. They're considered to be safe. We need to put an end to this virus, and we're not going to do it unless more people get vaccinated. Time to say something nice about somebody, Patty. Well, one of the problems with this pandemic and the focus on masks and the focus on travel plans is we're not focusing on who we're losing now. Um, three very notable Denverites within the last week. We have Kathy Reynolds, the first woman elected to city council, a great, great city council member. And Kevin Flynn, who's been at this table, said arguably the best city council person, the most important. Uh, Jock Bickert, who was a great philanthropist, leader in this community, and a friend of Harry Lewis, who also passed away. We're losing this entire generation of leaders, and we don't see a lot of people coming up to take their place. David. 
this program has won five regional Emmys for the Time Machine episodes where we play people that we're really not like, like Patty playing Molly Brown or or Judy Collins. Uh, But New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has won an international, uh, a national Emmy for his role in portraying a competent and life-saving leader on television, which is 100% the opposite of who he is. He's personally responsible for 6,000 deaths for shoving COVID patients into nursing homes against the the will of the nursing homes or their capacity to care for them. So for for that stretch, his... The difference between him and his Emmy Award-winning role would be as, as, as if John Caldera uh, played a sexy yoga instructor, and most people believed the role. So congratulations to Governor Cuomo, an outstanding acting job. You earned that Emmy. I, I just hope we never see John Caldera in yoga pants. That's this is what I take from that. Uh, time to say something nice. Marianne, your turn. I want to salute people in the healthcare profession who don't always get mentioned. We have rightly honored our doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals who are risking their lives to take care of COVID patients, both in hospitals and healthcare facilities, nursing homes, rehab centers, and the like. I, I want to address the people who are at the lowest end of the pay scale and all, who also are at risk. And these are people like housekeepers and maintenance workers and the people who cook the meals for the patients and for the staff. And they're, they're just as much at risk, um, and this shout-out also goes to my own wonderful hero husband, Jeff, who is a chef in a rehab facility with 50 recovering COVID patients. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't worry that if is today can be the day. Here, here. Krista, we go to you. I'm going to give it to that young woman in Lone Tree. She Her name is Gitanyali Rao, and she just won Times kid of the year award. She goes to STEM high school. She's an inventor. She's a scientist. What a wonderful young woman. And I'm just so pleased that a Coloradan gets this award. And before we go tonight, I want to remind everyone that next Tuesday is Colorado Gives Day. And if you have valued what Colorado Inside Out and PBS 12 bring to you each week, please consider supporting us next Tuesday. Every dollar goes right into programming about and for your community. And thank you very much for making all of that impact possible. That's all the time we have today for Colorado Inside Out. I'm Dominic Dizzuti. On behalf of everybody here at PBS 12, thank you very much for watching. Good night.